blesses you. Deuteronomy 31, we are aiming to basically finish the chapter today. When I say basically finish the chapter, if I were inserting chapter divisions, I would not insert a chapter division where most English translations have inserted a chapter division. I would actually take Deuteronomy 31 verse 30 and put that as verse 1 of chapter 32, but as is usually the case, they didn't ask me. So we're going to preach through the remainder of Deuteronomy 31, that's the ambition anyway today, verses 9 through 29. So with the exception of verse 30, which we will address in the Lord's timing, the Lord's will, if that is permitted by him, next Lord's Day, okay? So Deuteronomy 31, 9 through 29 is our text. And because this is the word of God, you are the people of God on the Lord's Day, would you please stand if you are able to do so? Deuteronomy 31, beginning in verse 9, Moses writes, as he is carried along by the Holy Spirit, these words. Then Moses wrote this law and gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord and to all the elders of Israel. Moses commanded them, at the end of every seven years, at the set time in the year of release, at the Feast of Booths, When all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Assemble the people, men, women, and little ones, and the sojourner within your towns, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God and be careful to do all the words of this law. And that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. And the Lord said to Moses, behold, the days approach when you must die. Call Joshua and present yourselves in the tent of meeting that I may commission him. And Moses and Joshua went and presented themselves in the tent of meeting And the Lord appeared in the tent in a pillar of cloud. And the pillar of cloud stood over the entrance of the tent. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers. Then this people will rise and whore after the foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering. And they will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day and I will forsake them and hide my face from them. They will be devoured. Many evils and troubles will come upon them so that they will say in that day, have not these evils come upon us because our God is not among us and I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil that they have done because they have turned to other gods. Now, therefore, write this song. Teach it to the people of Israel and put it in their mouths that this song may be a witness for me against the people of Israel. For when I have brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to give to their fathers, and they have eaten and are full and grown fat, they will turn to other gods and serve them and despise me and break my covenant And when many evils and troubles have come upon them, this song shall confront them as a witness, for it will live unforgotten in the mouths of their offspring. For I know what they are inclined to do, even today, before I have brought them into the land that I swore to give. So Moses wrote this song the same day, And taught it to the people of Israel. And the Lord commissioned Joshua, the son of Nun, and said, Be strong and courageous, for you shall bring the people of Israel into the land that I swore to give them. I will be with you. When Moses had finished writing the words of this law in a book, to the very end, Moses commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, Take this book of the law and put it by the side of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God that it may be there for a witness against you. For I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. Behold, 
Even today, while I am yet alive with you, you have been rebellious against the Lord. How much more, after my death, assemble to me all the elders of your tribes and your officers, that I may speak these words in their ears and call heaven and earth to witness against them. For I know that after my death, you will surely act corruptly and turn aside from the way that I have commanded you, and in the days to come, evil will befall you, because you will do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger through the work of your hands. The grass withers, church family. The flowers fade. But the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Each morning, Tana and I get ready for the day next to one another, most days, in our bathroom, where Americans tend to get ready for the day. We have two sinks and a large mirror that we use. However, I have noticed something. I've noticed, and this is not true for, for Tana, I'm certain. She's got a special mirror that she uses off to the side as well. I'm not sure what that thing is called, but it lights up and does those sorts of things. It has a name, I'm positive. I just don't know it. I've noticed that the lighting in our bathroom is, is dimmer than one might desire. There are shadows and such as you're looking into the mirror and portions of your face that you may not see clearly. And I tend to appreciate that when I'm looking in the mirror. And I've realized that the lighting is not as bright as it might be when I have stood in front of a mirror with a brighter light. So for example, in fact, one of the Mirrors that always stand out to me with bright lights and bathrooms are hotels. I think, my goodness, look at that man in the mirror. Who is that? It feels like it's been years and he's aging. And that's precisely what happens when, you know, for example, I'm traveling and I go to a bathroom and I've got to get ready for the morning and turn the light on and look into the mirror and they've got a, maybe a special mirror that tends to highlight certain aspects of my face. I'm not sure what happens I tend to see things like, well, there are wrinkles forming there on, around my eyes, and I didn't know those were even there. How long have those been there? Various blemishes that I see when the light is, is brighter and, and the reflection is more acute. I'm made aware of, of what actually has been there, but I wasn't able to see with as much clarity in my own bathroom with a dimmer light. Well, as I thought about that this last week, I thought, we have seen throughout Deuteronomy a reflection of humanity in Israel, haven't we? If you've been with us throughout this journey in Deuteronomy, we have, we have seen this reflection of humanity in the people of Israel, and it's not a flattering reflection. You don't walk away from Deuteronomy and think, you know what, I want to be just like these people. Or at least you shouldn't. But then we get to Deuteronomy chapter 31, verses 9 and following, and Deuteronomy 32, where we actually have this recorded song that God commands Moses to write. And it appears to me that we just entered a brighter bathroom. (laughs) With a clearer reflection. We're seeing blemishes and wrinkles we didn't see prior That's precisely what I experienced this last week as I was reading through, studying through this text. We see ourselves, let's say it this way, we see ourselves more accurately even in a painful way, a less than flattering way, beginning in Deuteronomy 31 verse 9 and running really through Deuteronomy 32. So that's what the Lord does. He grants a lucid reflection, a clearer reflection of humanity and of Israel in this text. So what we're going to do this morning is we are going to revisit the same reality that indeed in the midst of God's kindness and his goodness and his faithfulness to the people of Israel, the day is coming when they will reject him. We find that throughout Deuteronomy. I, I feel like we're, we're just playing the same song over and over and over again. And in some sense, we are because that's precisely what Deuteronomy plays. God has been good. He's going to be good. Israel is going to be unfaithful. And as a result, they're going to be judged. That's their path. 
That's the direction and the trajectory they're on. But we get even more specific in this text because Moses answers for us, or rather the Spirit through Moses answers for us this question. Why will Israel do this? It's not simply that Israel is going to reject the Lord. Why will they reject the Lord? And that's really the question Moses focuses on over the next couple of chapters. We'll answer this question in two stages this morning, if you're taking notes. So you can jot down these two stages if you like. First, we will identify Israel's privileges. Israel is a privileged people in Deuteronomy. And we're going to identify three of those privileges. So three of Israel's sacred privileges. Second, after looking together at Israel's privileges, we will unpack together Israel's predisposition. Israel's predisposition. So first, Israel's privileges, three of them. And then second, we're going to look together at Israel's predisposition, which really does provide for us an answer to the question, why will Israel continue to reject the Lord? Well, let's begin with Israel's privileges. If you would look with me at verse nine, our very first verse in our text, verse nine, then Moses wrote this law and gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord and to all the elders of Israel. So Moses wrote down the law and then he gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi who carried the ark and he gave it to the elders who provided oversight for the people of Israel. So the first privilege Israel will have is God's law. And this is nothing new if you've been with us in Deuteronomy. From the word go, we've learned that God grants his law. He granted his law at Mount Horeb or Sinai and he, he repackages it, as it were, and explains it and reapplies it throughout Deuteronomy, which, of course, the title itself, Deuteronomy, means second law. A bit of a misnomer, but perhaps capturing this central reality in Deuteronomy that it is law-focused. So the first privilege Israel enjoys is God's law. So Israel's future failure to obey the Lord will have nothing to do, nothing to do with a lack of awareness or a lack of information. You see, Israel will never be able to say, well, we just didn't know what you wanted. You never told us how to live. They won't stand before the Lord and be justified in their disobedience because of the absence of information. God has provided for them his law, his instruction. Israel is fully aware of what pleases the Lord. We could take this further and say, even with the Apostle Paul, in Romans 2, verse 15, that all humanity has the law of God written on their hearts. All humanity. What is he saying there? What is Paul saying, that is? I think he's actually reflecting what we find in Deuteronomy while there are differing degrees of this awareness of God's law, every human being possesses an intrinsic moral compass that informs him or her concerning what is right and wrong. Everyone has a moral compass. Varying degrees, certainly, but the law of God has been written on the hearts of all humans on account of having been created by God. Additionally, I want you to notice that God instructs Israel to read the law in front of the entire congregation of Israel every seven years. And so it's not simply that God said, look, I told you once, I'm not telling you again. That's not how God instructs. And you know this, teachers in the room, you know this quite well. Repetition is intrinsic. It's integral to faithful teaching. You say the same thing, over and over and over again. Oftentimes, you say the same thing in various ways. But every teacher knows that you've got to continue to repeat yourself if you really want the students to, to imbibe and understand and embrace the subject matter. This is no different with the greatest of all teachers, God himself. And so he doesn't simply just give them his law. He actually builds into the rhythm of their years this consistent rereading of the entire law. Every seven years, they are to read 
all of the law in front of all the congregation of the people of Israel. Look with me at the second part of verse 10 and verse 11. At the end of every seven years, at the set time of the year of release, at the Feast of Booths, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. You may recall this, you may not if you've been with us, but back in Deuteronomy 15, verse one, Moses described this year of release, this every seven years, what would happen if you were an Israelite is you were released of your debt. <laughs> How tremendous. And this was called a year of release. So every seven years after you'd been in debt, perhaps some of them had been in debt, they were granted liberation and freedom and forgiveness from their debt. And so that was to be, as it were, commemorated by the reading of the law, God's good instruction, which, which doubtless was to remind Israel that the God who had rescued them out of slavery in Egypt was now instructing them. And additionally, you may notice in our text that that this was to occur during the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. I mentioned Deuteronomy 15 as the year of release instruction. And then one chapter later, Deuteronomy 16, we receive this instruction concerning the three annual feasts or festivals of Israel. These feasts were the Feast of Passover, which, by the way, included in Passover, we would, we would include the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Booths, Feast of Tabernacles. And concerning this third feast, the Feast of Booths, Moses wrote these words. This is back in Deuteronomy 16, beginning in verse 13. You shall keep the Feast of Booths seven days when you've gathered in the produce from your threshing floor and your wine press. So this was a harvest festival. Verse 14, you shall rejoice in your feast celebrate. This is a time of joy. God who has granted the land also has given you the produce of the land. It's all from him. You and your son and your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow who are within your towns. For seven days you shall keep the feast to the Lord your God at the place that the Lord will choose because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in all the work of your hands so that you will be altogether joyful. The purpose of the feast is joy. We talked about that months ago when we were in Deuteronomy 16, but this feast commemorated God's kindness in giving the land and in providing the produce from the land for Israel's sustenance. So it was during this time that Israel was to gather everybody together, men and women and children and the sojourners, all the priests, and they were to stand together and they were to read God's law in its entirety. You think that scripture reading is long here on Lord's Day morning from time to time. Every seven years, this was to happen. We actually learn more about this in Nehemiah. This takes place in Nehemiah as they're recovering these things. And in Nehemiah 8 and Nehemiah 9, we find that they are doing just that. They're reading God's law during this time of year, the Feast of Booths. And then as verses 12 and 13 indicate, this reading of the law every seven years was intended both to remind Israel of God's good instruction and to teach the children, the new generations of what God had commanded of his people. So, all of this to say, one of the privileges that Israel enjoyed was the privilege of having God's law and of being reminded of that law on a regular basis. Secondly, the second privilege Israel enjoyed, in addition to God's law, was God's leader. God's leader in addition to having God's law, they had in Joshua, after Moses was going to die, they had God's leader. Look with me at verses 14 and 15. The Lord said to Moses, behold, the days approach when you must die. How about that? We're gonna revisit this. Moses, Moses has the privilege of preaching his final sermon and then going up on a mountain and dying. And he knows it's happening. What a stewardship it is to know you're about to die. A sacred stewardship indeed. 
This is the case for Moses. The Lord says, call Joshua, present yourselves in the tent of meeting that I may commission him. And Moses and Joshua went and presented themselves in the tent of meeting, verse 15. And the Lord appeared in the tent in a pillar of cloud. And the pillar of cloud stood over the entrance of the tent. Many things we could say here, try not to get sidetracked too much. This pillar of cloud, of course, is reminiscent of of Mount Sinai. It's reminiscent of God's faithfulness throughout the wilderness. God led his people through the pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. This was a representation of God's nearness, of his presence, of his provision, of his faithfulness. And so Moses and Joshua go into the tent of meeting and then this pillar of cloud hovers over the entrance of the tent of meeting. In other words, what's happening in the tent is something God is doing. This was a testimony to the people of Israel, doubtless. But I do want to say this can get a bit confusing because the, the title tent of meeting gets used in a couple of different ways in the Old Testament. For example, the tabernacle is often referred to as the tent of meeting, Exodus 27, verse 21 is one of those passages, but consistently the tabernacle is referred to as the tent of meeting because God himself was meeting with Israel by means of the priests in the tabernacle. But there appears to be another tent. And this is a tent that Moses would use even before the tabernacle was constructed. You can look later at some point at Exodus 33 verses 7 through 11. Exodus 33, 7 through 11, it appears to describe a different tent a more personalized tent, a place where Moses would meet with God face to face as we learn in those two chapters, Exodus 33 and Exodus 34. This is the tent out of which Moses would come and his face was shining, having been in the presence of God. I think, in this context, I think God calls Moses and Joshua into that tent. It's difficult to know and I wouldn't die on this hill. But I think it's that personal tent of meeting rather than the tabernacle. And God meets Moses and Joshua in the tent and he commissions Joshua with those familiar words that we find in verse 23. Be strong and courageous. For you shall bring the people of Israel into the land that I swore to give them. I will be with you. And as we observed last week, after Moses' death, God will continue leading his people and he'll do so through the human agent, Joshua, who of course foreshadows or pictures the better Joshua, Yeshua, Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. Although Israel will fail to honor the Lord in the future, it will not be on account of lacking instruction. They have God's law. It will not be on account of lacking leadership. They have God's leader in Joshua. And then third, the third privilege that Israel will enjoy as God's people, in addition to God's law and God's leader, Israel will have God's land. God's land in which they are to obey the Lord and experience God's blessing. And so God even provides the space for this. They have instruction, they have a leader, and they have the space for it. What more could they need? God's description of Israel occurs in our text as they enter and inherit God's good land. Verse 20, verse A is perhaps the most vivid regarding this particular privilege. That is the privilege of the land. Look at verse 20, part A. For when I have brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to give to their fathers, and they have eaten and are full and grown fat. They're prosperous. They have all they could possibly need. They're described in terms of having an excess amount of weight, which in ancient terms meant you were well off. Plenty of food, plenty of land, under good leadership, with God's law, as your guide. Israel will enjoy the privileges of having all of these things. We've pointed this out multiple times, but it bears repeating. Israel is a picture of humanity. Don't miss that. 
You're not reading the Old Testament rightly unless you read it, understanding that while Israel pictures Israel, Israel also pictures humanity as a whole. This is Paul's point in Romans 2. One of the ways God shows us this, even in the Old Testament, is by describing Israel in similar ways that he described Adam and Eve. After all, Adam and Eve were privileged, think about it, to live with God's law. From any tree in the garden, you may freely eat, but one. There's a particular tree in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. From that tree, you must not eat it. On the day you eat of that tree, you will surely, what? Die. So they have God's law, and they enjoyed God's law, God's instruction in God's land, which is the way, by the way, Genesis describes the Garden of Eden. It's described as ha edits, the land, same way that the Old Testament describes the promised land, the land of Canaan. Moreover, we of course could argue that they enjoyed God's immediate and direct leadership without even the mediator of Joshua. So they had God's law, Adam and Eve did. They had God's land under God's direct leadership. What more could Adam and Eve need to obey the Lord? But what happens? They dishonor the Lord and they're removed from the land. What happens to Israel? They dishonor the Lord, and they're removed from the land. So don't miss that picture. This text is not simply about Israel. It's about humanity. It's about you. It's about me. Well, we've noted Israel's many privileges. They had God's law. They existed under God's leader. And they did so in God's land. Now let's turn to Israel's predisposition. We are introduced to a song that Moses is commanded to author in verses 19 through 22. And the lyrics of the song surface in Deuteronomy 32, so we won't get to the lyrics of the actual song until next Lord's Day, if the Lord wills. Today I'm simply interested in the way that God introduces the song through Moses. Look with me at verses 19 through 22, if you would. Now, therefore, God commands, write this song and teach it to the people of Israel. Put it in their mouths that this song may be a witness for me, notice, against. Not for. Against the people of Israel. Verse 20. For when I have brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to give to their fathers, and they have eaten and are full and grown fat, they will turn to other gods and serve them and despise me and break my covenant. Now we notice this. We've noticed this throughout Deuteronomy. This is old news. We know where we're headed. Verse 21. When many evils and troubles have come upon them, This song shall confront them as a witness, for it will live unforgotten in the mouths of their offspring. Now, if you underline in your Bibles or you highlight, this is where you'll want to do it. Notice these words. For I know what they are inclined to do, even today. Before I have brought them into the land that I swore to give, so Moses wrote this song the same day and taught it to the people. Of Israel, and we'll look at that song next Lord's Day. So pay particular attention to the word translated inclined. The English Standard Version translates this word inclined in Deuteronomy 31, verse 21. For I know what they are inclined to do even today. Genesis chapter 6 uses this same word. And it's quite similar. Genesis 6, verse 5, another portrait of humanity that is less than flattering, says this. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And here it is. Every intention. That's the word. Yetzer. Every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's humanity after Genesis 3. In a similar way, Genesis 8, 21. The same word, Yetzer. Translated, inclined in our text. Genesis 8, 21, we read these words. For the intention, there it is, of man's heart is evil from his youth. 
Israel's problem is humanity's problem. And it's a problem, don't miss this, of predisposition. It's a problem of nature, you see. They're corrupt inherently. Yes, we know Israel will disobey the Lord. They will reject the Lord. They will be removed from the land. But why is this the case? Because they are always predisposed to what displeases God. Just as humanity is. Israel's future failure is not simply a failure to do. It is a failure to do, but it isn't simply this. Israel's failure to do springs from a failure to be. Their problem is being. When I was a young convert, I know this is positive and encouraging, isn't it? You're uplifted at this point in the message and you think, wow, I could just go about my day now and feel wonderful about myself. But you understand, we say this from time to time, that the good news of the gospel is wonderful news because it's in response to terrible news. It remedies the problem we're talking about. So we're going to get there, as you would expect. But we have to really sink our teeth into this fundamental predisposition that we all have to sin. We, we don't just sin, we are sinful inherently. And as I mentioned, as a young convert, one of the men that poured into my life, his name is Steve Thompson. I have no idea where Steve is today. No idea. I came to know the Lord and uh, I got involved in FCA, Fellowship of Christian Athletes. I'm not even sure if FCA is still prominent, but it sure was in my life. It, it was instrumental. And I was involved in FCA and I went to one of the coaches' houses. I was a, I was a football player got involved, and Steve Thompson was there. Steve was an older man who had, who had been an athlete previously and uh, was still quite athletic. I actually played softball with him, and it blew my mind how good he was at softball still. He was an older man. Remember, I was 17, okay? <laughs> it's probably 30. I don't know. <laughs> he wasn't 80 like Joshua, right? <laughs> so anyway, Steve Thompson brought me into his house. He said, look, hey, you want to learn more about Christianity? I said, yeah, I'd love to. He invited me over to his house, said my wife will cook for us. And he's got, he had kiddos and, and his kiddos now are all grown. And uh, I, I spent every week, I went over to his home. He opened up his house to me. Which by the way, that's, that's what discipleship really is. It, it's, it's not necessarily adding on to your life. Activities, not necessarily. It's actually bringing a person. You're adding a person to those already existing activities. You're grafting a person into what you're already doing. I think that's, that's a wonderful demonstration of discipleship. I experienced it firsthand. So Steve had me over every week. And I remember one of the very first things he taught me. And uh, I said this over and over and over again. And, and we would talk through this and what this meant. But he said, he said to me, we aren't sinners because we sin. We aren't sinners because we sin. You've heard this, many of you. Rather, we sin because we are sinners. That is to say, our actions betray who we fundamentally are. This is Israel's problem. That's why. That's why they're going to reject God. And the law couldn't solve the problem. A human leader couldn't solve the problem. And a good land could not solve that problem. Why? Because all of those are external. None of them get at the basic predisposition Israel had and all humans have to sin. This was the center, by the way, of, of a debate in the fifth century, not that long ago. And the debate took place between a man by the name of Augustine, Augustine of Hippo. That's how you were known then, your name and then where you're from. Augustine of Hippo and a fifth century British theologian named Pelagius. And Pelagius, and you don't have to remember all of this, but you need to know this was talked about for a long time 
and it was talked about long before we came onto the scene, Pelagius argued that humanity possessed the inherent ability not to sin. That after Genesis chapter three, we still had the ability not to sin. It was just a, it was a question of decision. It was a question of the will. And in fact, it was oftentimes a question of environment. If you were in the right environment, if you had God's law, God's leader in God's land, that would be sufficient. Contrary to Pelagius and his disciples, Augustine continued with Scripture. That human nature after Genesis 3 is fundamentally changed. There's a constitutional change that happens when we sin in Genesis 3. We become sinners. All of Adam and Eve's posterity now are conceived sinners. And humans then, Augustine goes on to argue, are free only to sin. Apart from grace. We do not possess the ability not to sin. Humans are predisposed to evil. Our problem is constitutional. It's inherent. Provide us with the right teaching. Provide us with the right leadership, Augustine argued. Provide us with the right environment and we will still fail every time. Why? Because our problem is internal. It's who we are. We can't hear this enough. This is why, as I mentioned a moment ago, God's law couldn't remedy it. Listen to what Paul writes in Romans 3.20. We're spending a lot on our problem this morning, I know, because the text is on our problem. As an aside, just maybe a moment of levity. I hope my sermons reflect the text. It's a desire of expositional preaching. I've got my finger, by the way, in my notes to make sure I go back there. We're gonna go back to Romans 3.20. I mentioned it a moment ago. We're gonna come back to it. Last Lord's Day, I thought, I thought, well, I, I think I preached in a manner that's consistent with the text because after the sermon, many came up to me and said, woof, we thought that was a farewell sermon. <laughs> if you were with us last Lord's Day. And it wasn't a farewell sermon on my part, but you know, Moses is preaching a farewell sermon. So I thought I must have been preaching the text at least in that case. So hopefully the sermon this morning reflects the text and the text is heavy in Deuteronomy 31 and 32 on our problem, our predicament, our predisposition. But Romans 3.20 told you we'd get back to that. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Why? Here's what Paul writes. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That's what the law can do for you. The law can expose sin. The law can turn the light on a bit brighter, give you a better mirror, but it can't remedy the blemishes. It can't solve the predisposition. The law can reveal our sinfulness, but it cannot remedy our sinfulness. What we need is something sufficient to remedy the problem. We need something sufficient, both, don't miss this, to forgive us of our sins that we've committed and transform us. Change our fundamental predisposition. Because you see, if we just have forgiveness, we start with a clean slate. What's the problem with this? We'll fill up the slate again. And again, and again. So forgiveness in itself is insufficient. If we just had transformation, this would be insufficient. While we would, we would be transformed from this point forward, we have acquired an eternal debt. We need to be forgiven and transformed. And that is precisely what God provides in Christ Jesus. God provides one who grants a sufficient sacrifice 
securing forgiveness of sins and forgiveness of sinners. And then through the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit to actually walk in newness of life. So what happens in the gospel is we come to realize God's law was insufficient for our transformation and forgiveness. God's merely human leader in Joshua was insufficient for our forgiveness and transformation. God's land was insufficient for our forgiveness and our transformation. What we need is someone to come and change our fundamental disposition by the power of his work and the sending of his spirit and to provide sufficient forgiveness for all of our sins. And that's what we have in Christ. That's the gospel. And this is where Paul takes us in the book of Romans. This is where we find the sermons going in the book of Acts. For example, Peter preaches in Acts 10, verse 43, to him, that is to Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And then Paul describes this transformation aspect in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. He says that we all uses the imagery of Exodus 34, where Moses goes in and sees the Lord, speaks face-to-face with the Lord, whatever in the world that means. And he gets, as it were, transformed. His face is transformed in the Lord's presence. Moses writes, we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, by the way, in the context, that's Jesus, beholding the glory of, of Christ, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So what does all this mean? This means that through the work of Christ, his incarnation, that is God the Son becoming human while remaining truly God, through his incarnation, through his obedient life, he lived a life of perfection, obeying the law at every turn. He did not commit sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, Peter writes. Through his substitutionary death, he died in our place and for our sins before the Father. Through his burial and his resurrection on the third day in glorious power. So through the work of Christ and, of course, don't miss this, it's because the work of the Spirit is tethered to the gospel. As Jesus ascends back to the Father, what does he say? I'm gonna go back to the Father and when I do that, I'm gonna send whom? The Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's going to bear witness concerning me. So through all of that, Christ's conception and birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and even the sending of the Holy Spirit, through all of that, we now are receiving, have received, are receiving forgiveness of sins and transformation out of our sinful predisposition. We're receiving what Israel only hoped for when Christ would come. Friends, if you don't know Christ, self-help won't finally help you. If you've not come to treasure Jesus and surrender to Christ and embrace Christ in faith, no matter how many steps someone provides for you, it will be insufficient. I don't care if it's three, six, nine, twelve, or twelve hundred steps to a better life. You're rearranging chairs on the deck of the Titanic at that point. And you know this, if you're honest with yourself, you know, I think, you know that your problem isn't simply what you do because you hear your thoughts. You hear your inclination, your predisposition. You experience your desire, your affections. You know that your problem, if you're honest this morning, with that problem, and it's tough, it's tough to be honest about that problem. You know that your problem is not simply doing. Your problem is being. It's actually who you are. 
And yet there is something else in you that knows that that is not the way it ought to be. Because as Paul writes in Romans 2 verse 15, the law of God is written on your heart. You know this is what you should do and be. But this is who you actually are and this is what you actually do. The only sufficient answer for that problem is for the God who made you to, of course, forgive you of your sin through the work of Christ and then begin the process of fundamentally changing who you are through Christ. That's the promise of Deuteronomy. If you were with us recently, that's the promise of a circumcised heart. That's the promise in Jeremiah 31 of God writing his law on our hearts. That's the promise of Ezekiel. In Ezekiel 36, I had to think about it, Ezekiel 36, of replacing the heart of stone with a heart of flesh. Our predisposition needs to be altered, and you can only have that through Christ, the one who created you in the first place. If you have questions about this, if you think perhaps for the very first time you're embracing Jesus Christ, let us rejoice with you and let us come alongside of you. Stay after the service. And as you walk out of these doors, take a left, and on the right-hand side out there, there's a room called Crossroads. I mentioned it during the welcome this morning. Go into that room and share with the pastor in that room that you have questions about Christianity or you've embraced Jesus, you think, for the very first time or you think perhaps you thought previously you had trusted in Jesus, but maybe you you didn't. We want to talk with you and come alongside of you and you alongside of us as we experience forgiveness and transformation. I want to say one more thing and then I will wrap up. I'm not telling you how long the one more thing is. There are things that take a long time. Hopefully this will be short. Micah, I've mentioned Micah twice (laughs) during this sermon because he says some profound things. He's like his mother. Very bright. I don't think my wife has amened in over two years of ministry here at First Baptist Pal, but she just amened me. I was putting Micah to bed one night, and, and Micah looks at me, and you know, as they're going to bed, you've heard this, children become dehydrated philosophers who need a hug. So he was becoming a dehydrated theologian who needed a hug, and, and he asked me the question, he said, Dad, if Jesus Christ died to take away my sins, then why do I still sin? And I thought, okay, here we go. I was ready to go to bed at that point and realized, well, that's not happening right now. And uh, I, I asked him, I said, well, what we find in Scripture is not necessarily that we were transformed once in a moment and it was final and complete. What we find is we were transformed when we came to know Jesus and that we are being transformed throughout life. That it's a process. And I I asked him, and he knows this by testimony of others, I hope he knows this by experience with his dad. I pray he does. I said, Am I the exact same person I was years ago? He said, no, you're different. I said, that's transformation. I'm not what I should be. But thank God, I'm not what I once was. And the Christian is able to say that throughout life. Day to day, mm, Not always. Year to year, in God's kindness and mercy. It's kind of like gas prices. In the end, they're going up. That's just the way it is. Sanctification is like that. In the end, we're improving by God's mercy 
and transformation. Okay, we've listed Israel's privileges. They've received God's law under God's leader in God's land. None of this provided the antidote for their sinfulness. Why? Because of their predisposition. And they were predisposed to sin. They were, as all humans are, Christ alone being the exception, inclined to evil. And it's for this reason that God provided Christ, that by means of his work on our behalf, we could receive both forgiveness and transformation. And this process is taking place even now in his mercy, if you know Jesus. Even today, you're being saved. You're being transformed. Throughout this process, I find the words of that great hymn, Come Thou Fount, so very relevant. Because I think it captures well. My desire, your desire, if you know the Lord throughout this process, Come Thou Fount begins with these words. Come Thou Fount of every blessing, tune my heart. Not just my mouth. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. And then the final verse is most compelling for me. O to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter, what? Bind my wandering heart to thee. And then the realization. This is a process of transformation. Prone to wonder. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. What's the answer? Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Let's pray together. Father, would you do that for us in Christ by the indwelling spirit? Prone to wonder, Lord, we feel it. Prone to leave the God we love. No law, no human leader merely, no land can remedy that problem. Only Christ. So here's our heart. Take it and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Do this, Father, for our good eternally and for your glory. On account of Christ, we pray these things and all God's people said, amen.